So we will turn to it now. We're going to go to James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. And if you haven't turned there already, you can do so now. And just to kind of reset our time uh, in this section, we want to remind ourselves that we are saved by grace and grace alone, as we've been learning these past several weeks from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, how rich that truth is, is that there is nothing in us or things that we can do that could ever save ourselves. And it is the rich mercy, kindness, and grace of our Lord that has saved us. And um, so there's really nothing we can do to uh, pay him back or to merit anything in regards to our salvation. And uh, the reason why I want us to be reminded of that is because James, as a shepherd, as one that is leading the early Jerusalem church, is a concerned pastor, is a concerned shepherd. And he sees that once we come to the Lord Jesus and make a profession of faith and entrust our lives to him, There ought to be evidence of that. There ought to be an outworking of that very grace that has infiltrated these early Christians. And so for the focus of James and his readers, and as a shepherd, he wants to make sure that, hey, it's true. We are saved by grace through faith alone. And yet that faith is going to show itself. That it's going to manifest in a way that it affects the way that we think, our attitudes. He reminds us right off the bat in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. There's a hard attitude, a perspective that has changed from the grace of God. And because of that faith, we are now able to endure trials. Because of that faith, our tongues are transformed. Not only are we going to now say we love the Lord and want to serve him, but the way in which we speak to him, the way in which we speak to each other is dramatically transformed. And not only that, we see that our attitudes toward the poor to the disenfranchised, to the marginalized, will be transformed as well. That there will be a care and concern for the widow and orphan. That there will be a care and concern for the poor. That we're not going to show partiality. Again, because of the grace of Jesus Christ. All of these things are a manifestation of the faith we have In our Lord. And one other thing that he wants to remind us of is that our relationships are transformed. The section right above the section that we're going to go today, at the very end of chapter 3, if you look there, he shows us what true wisdom is. And it's a wisdom that is not earthly or unspiritual or demonic, that is jealous or selfish ambition. Or it practice every kind of vile practice, but it is pure, peaceable, gentle, 
open to reason, full of mercy, and grew, grew fruits, impartial and sincere. It is a peacemaking transformation that God um, enacts in those that love him. That now our relationships reflect, hey, when I say I have faith in God, when I say I love Jesus, it shows in my relationships that there, I'm, not, I'm not one of a brawler, one who's always in arguments, one who's always in conflict. Now, of course, because of sin, there's always going to be conflict. But my life is characterized by being a man or woman of peace. That because of my relationship in the Lord Jesus, I'm able to have a good, settled heart and disposition with the Lord. And that affects the way I treat my brothers and sisters. And the rest of chapter 4 is a long treatise in regards to that. That the source of our quarrels, our fights, are our passions, our selfish desires. It's our worldliness. It is a self-centered type of life, of perspective. That we go about life thinking everything is about us. And when we do that, it really shows, do I really have a faith in Jesus? Because if it is, if our life is marked by our own desires, our own passions, only thinking of the things of the world, we make ourselves to be an enemy of God. We transition here at the end of verse, uh, at the end of verse six in chapter four. But he gives more grace. God opposes the proud gives grace to the humble. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. As we think, and, and James is going to expound on this. He's going to expound on this idea that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. As we go to this, his word this morning, it's time to just self-evaluate, just to kind of think through, is my life marked by broken relationships? Is my life marked by an uncontrolled tongue? Is my life marked by an uncontrolled obsession with this world that it dominates my thinking and perspective? So much so that it's affecting the way that I relate with God. And consequent to that, the way that I relate with my brothers and sisters and even those outside the church. Well, with those thoughts, let's go to the Lord this morning um, in prayer. Let me read our section, and then we'll, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, 
and he will exalt you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we go to his word this morning. Lord, we do uh, submit our time to you, and we pray that you would um, drive thoughts of, of ourselves, of this world, of things that are not related to you, out from our thoughts and our hearts, and that we would now fill them with thoughts of you, of how good you are, how precious you are, how glorious you are because of what you've done, because you've sent your son to die for us. And through faith in him, now we can have a right relationship with you. And so it is with that promise in mind that we come to you this morning, recognizing we cannot come to you by ourselves, but it is through the blood of Christ. And we come to you humbly receiving your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I am the least of the apostles. I am the very least of all the saints. I am the foremost of sinners. As you look through the life of Paul, and as I said those in order, from earlier in his ministry, he says, I am the least of the apostles. As he transitions to a missionary ministry. And then in Ephesians 3.8, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. And that's about AD 63, toward the end of his ministry. This is one of his prison epistles. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. This coming from the great apostle Paul, arguably, one of the greatest followers of Jesus of all time. And yet his own self-evaluation is to see himself as the least of apostles, as the least of the saints, and the foremost of all sinners. Where does this attitude come from? Where does this heart posture come from? If we were to evaluate our own hearts and our own thinking, let's face it. I mean, you know, we are predominantly Asian American church. You are raised to achieve and to excel for the most part, okay? There's some outliers like myself. (laughs) Right? But for the most part, gone to uh, better universities and colleges, and consequent to that, you've achieved a certain amount of uh, wealth through your jobs, okay? And um, in comparison, as you think about the rest of those that are around you, you're probably doing better than most, and in that kind of environment and, come, and that kind of perspective, you can be led to a false sense of what? I'm kind of something, ain't I? Right? There's, even though you might not be actively seeking that perspective, right? 
because of a certain level of achievement and excellence, there's a slow creep toward self-exaltation. We just can't help it. It's just there, right? And we think we have a perspective of ourselves um, that is often wrong, right? That is often not the way that the Lord would have us think. Because if the great apostle Paul, in his own self-estimation, characterizes himself in, in light of these statements, who are we? Who are we? As you think of your own heart, as you think of your own um, the way that you think about yourself, okay? And I'm not talking about some asceticism or self-flagellation where you have this false sense of humility. Oh, you know, I'm not anything, you know, right? I'm not talking about that. But to have a proper perspective in light of the greatness of God and who he is, we need to have a proper perspective of ourselves. And as we do that, as we seek this attribute of humility, now we're going to put ourselves and we're going to equip ourselves to put ourselves in a position of having a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. Because this is what's driving this context. As we get closer and submit ourselves to God, and we understand who he is and our place before him, you can't help but affect the way that you relate with others. Therein lies the key to humility and having peaceful relationships. Therein lies the key to having a right relationship with God. Five points this morning, okay, of living a life of humility. And it's really, uh, the outline is driven by this text here in verse uh, 7 through 10. The first point is this, is to submit to God. Submit to God. I just want to make sure that I got the same thing you guys have. Okay, yes. So if we're going to pursue a right relationship with God and with others, what are some elements that can help us do that? What is it that's going to move us to a position of humility? And number one, right off the bat, is to submit ourselves to God. As you can see there, as he transitioned from God opposing the proud and give grace to the humble, what is it, therefore, we need to do? And he says, therefore, submit to God. What does it mean to submit to God? It is a willful, intentional, hard attitude of placing ourselves under the authority and lordship of God. This is the language of submission. It's used elsewhere in regards to the believer's submission to government, for wives unto their husbands, 
for those in the congregation to submit to the elders of the church. It's the very same word. And we need to do that with our Lord. If we're going to understand what humility truly is, we need to have a Godward focus of intentionally placing our will under his. Not that our will be done, but his will be done. As you evaluate and go through your life, is it your will being done? Or is it the Lord's? Especially in our relationships. Is it your desires that are dominating those relationships? Or is it the Lord's? Do you find yourself in constant conflict with brothers and sisters in the church? At the workplace? At school? If those things are true, it could be a sign where you are not submitting your will to the Lord's will. And what is his will for us? If anyone come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will save it. Are we denying ourselves? Are we daily consecrating ourselves to the cross and following our Lord Jesus? Do we think our lives are worthy to submit to him? Meaning, Do we think of it as something that we are holding on to for our own sake and our own pleasures and our own purposes? Or are we, okay, Lord, this is your life, and I need to live it according to the way you want me to live it? You know, we went to a a missions conference this uh, past week here, not here, but at Grace Community. This is a great reminder of uh, the Great Commission, Uh, but this uh, organizer, this ministry called Radius International, is one that is very specific to the unreached language groups of this world, meaning they don't really send missionaries to Japan because that's already a a reached language group. They don't really send uh, missionaries to Turkey, right, because that's a reached language group. But they send them to the remotest places of Japan, where there is no scripture in regards to God's word. They will send them to a little niche in Turkey, where they speak a subset of that language. They will send people to Papua New Guinea, where there there is yet to be um, any gospel presence at all. And the reason why I mention this is when you meet these men and women that commit to this, that say, Lord, my life is not yours. 
My life is not mine, it is yours. And I'm fully willing to use it for the sake of the Great Commission. That every language, tribe, and tongue would be able to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. As you think of your own life, would you consider just nothing at all, just to do that? Give it entirely to the Lord to do that? Or do you think of it too precious, too high, because you have your own plans? We need to submit ourselves to his desires rather than our own. This was a problem early on with even the, uh, the Lord's disciples. And as James and John were uh, fighting here in uh, Mark chapter 10. And who gets to sit on the left and right hand of our Lord Jesus? Because this was the positions of prominence and privilege. It's royal language. And he flips it around. And he's saying, this, you know, this is not the way that it ought to be. Let me give you a new paradigm. Instead of you wanting to be in this position of, of power and authority and privilege... Put yourself in the position of service, of being considered the least, that you are putting yourself to be in the position of the Son of Man, that did not come to be served, but to serve. So again, if if we're going to put ourselves in a position of submission to God, that's the mindset. That's the heart attitude that we need to put ourselves in. Our worldly leaders exercise authority through power, through coercion, by heavy-handedness. This is not the kingdom rule. Our Lord is teaching us it is through humility and service. And again, as you think about your relationship with the Lord, is that what it's characterized as? And then that ought to affect the way that we interact with one another. Is it a hard attitude of ours that we are serving one another? I want the best for my brothers and sisters, not for myself. That is the path toward humility. That is the way toward living a life of humility. Of first submitting ourselves to God. Secondly, all right, well, here's some questions for you. Okay. Do I have difficulty serving people? Do I have difficulty submitting to people I don't respect? Am I usually seeking a position of authority? Right? We all love to tell people what to do. I do. Okay? I love telling my kids what to do. Take out the trash. Clean your room. 
Okay. Do we gravitate toward serving others or ordering others around? Okay. That's going to really determine whether we have submitted ourselves to God or not. Secondly, resist the devil. Resist the devil and draw near to God. <clears throat> this word resist is to stand against, to oppose. And what James is driving uh, the readers and the, and, and the believers toward is to stand against and oppose the devil. If we are going to realize humility in our lives, we need to resist the devil. So there's some key things that I want us to think about here. <clears throat> if we are called to resist the devil, we first need to understand who he is and what he does. Who he is and what he does. Because often our thinking of the devil is what? It's colored by this world. When I was growing up, I was introduced to this movie called The Exorcist. It's one of the scariest movies that I have ever seen. And because I saw it so young, it still colors the way that I think about the devil today. Okay. But all to say that the way that we think of the devil is often colored by our popular culture. You know, right? Usually. The horns, you know, and uh, the, the demon possession and things like that. But scripture makes clear who the, the devil is, who Satan is, and what his strategies are. Revelation 12, 9, he's a deceiver of the world. He's an accuser of the brethren. He is a slanderer. That's what devil actually means. He's a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies. He steals, he kills, and he destroys. And yet, he's also called an angel of light in 2 Corinthians. Okay. So, although these characteristics seem in your face that Oh, yeah, you know, if I watch out for lies, if I watch out for slandering, if I watch out for, you know, murderous uh, attitudes, then I can kind of understand who the devil is. But we also see that he is an angel of light, able to subtly use these things. Because as much as we can see sin coming from a mile away many times, there are many times where well, he will be much more subtle and much more patient. The devil is the second most patient person in this world. He has nothing but time because he knows what his end is. He knows that he will ultimately be defeated, but in that time, he's gonna use his schemes, his plans, to make the children of God fall and to sin and to be away from God. 
His scheme is to move the children of God away from God. And often, he will be very subtle and be very patient. Brothers and sisters, in recent days, we've seen many that proclaim God's truth, teachers of God's word, fall. And it's been after 20 plus years of ministry Just recently, um, there was a a case down in Orange County where the pastor was having a 10-year affair with one of the wives of the congregation. He had a secret child with that woman. He'd been in ministry for 20-plus years. The devil is subtle. The devil is relentless. And the devil is patient. Something related to this. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Okay, And um, can he dominate our lives to the degree that we're going to say, well, the devil made me do it, right? That, that his influence and his lies and his schemes are so strong that we can blame it all on him. And the answer to that is no, right? We are indwelt by a new nature. And in fact, we see that Christ in his finished work He is the one that has already broken down the schemes and plans of the devil himself. Look at particularly 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so under this new nature, in Christ... God has already destroyed the works of the devil. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are already seated in the heavenly places. All to say that can the devil dominate us so much that we can fully blame it on him? No. So what is the warning? What is it that James wants us to understand. I believe it's this. In Ephesians chapter 4.26, we don't give opportunity for the devil. When we let anger manifest, when we let it fester, also here, uh, the next passage, 1 Peter 5, when we let the devil do his thing, by entertaining a self-will, an angry will, a worldliness perspective, when we do those things, then we give the devil an opportunity. We see in 1 Peter 5, he's a roaring lion. 
He is an adversary that we must take seriously. We must live soberly, as it says here. That he is out to get us. The second part of it is that we need to draw near to God. Okay. <clears throat> the solution is we need to draw near to God. So, and the idea is going to God to worship and enjoy fellowship. Uh, this is really in, in, in the Old Testament language. And it is to draw near to him in the sense of worshiping and sacrificing unto him. And as he uh, moves his uh, readers to understand that the antidote to resisting or to really helping us resist the devil is to draw near to the Lord. It is a movement of relationship. It is a heart attitude, again, that realizes submission to God in verse 7. It is one that realizes, look, I can't do this of my own power and strength and will. I need to go to the Lord, be close to him, and to understand his power and his equipping in my life. As we, as we do that, there's the promise that he will not reject us, that he will draw near to us. Brothers and sisters, he is so unlike us. When we are wronged, there's a hesitancy. There's a tendency. There's a difficulty in restoring relationship, right? If any of us are married, you you understand this, okay? When you harm your husband and your wife, do you think it's easy just to admit that you are wrong, that you sinned, or you did something not right? No. If you have any brothers or sisters, you know this reality. It's not an easy thing to draw near, especially in the midst of sin. But this is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be. As we draw near to the Lord, then we are able to resist the devil. And then we are able to enjoy sweet fellowship with him. There can be more said to that, but we've got to move. One of the things that is going to draw us is to understand who God is. So just as we understand who Satan is and know what his plans and schemes are, we can resist him uh, properly. In the same way, as we draw near to God... What are we drawn to? What is it so glorifying, so precious? What is so adorable about God? Even just in James chapter 1, we see who he is. He's He's a God who gives generously, who answers prayer generously. He's a giver of good gifts. He doesn't change, he's impartial.
as you meditate, as we meditate on who he is, therein lies the drawing. Therein lies what moves us toward him. As you think about your own relationships, the, the more fault you see in the other person, the more away you want to be with them, from them. But as you realize, hey, this person is beautiful. As I think about my wife, you know, you think about all the many millions of things you can think of. How cute she is. How adorable she is. How smart she is. How godly she is. You, you, those are the things that draw you. And that's the same with our Lord. As you think about what he has done, he's died for us. He saved us. He gives us power to follow him. All of these things, the privileges of this life found in Jesus Christ are what draw us to him. So as you meditate more and more on the Lord, those are the things that will draw near, help us draw near to him and resist the devil. Okay, we got to move. <clears throat> three and four are very interrelated. Three is to cleanse ourselves. As we draw near to the Lord, we're going to see how dirty we are. It gives us a proper perspective of our own sin. And what James calls us to is to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. This is, again, Old Testament language. Cleansing of hands is a ritual purity type of uh, uh, ritual that they went through. And it was to really understand from a heart position and attitude and an exterior manifestation of that, that they are to cleanse themselves for temple worship and duty. And the purifying of the hearts was the inward focus. So taken together, it's, it's a call for us to consider our state before him. To take sin seriously. Like I said, it's coupled with the mourning over sin. You see in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Again, these are expressions of taking sin seriously. And making sure that there is no room in our lives and in our hearts for anger, for self-will, for worldliness. That these things would be on our radar and that we, under the power of the Holy Spirit, would cleanse ourselves of these things. As we draw near to the Lord, we'll see that sin in our own hearts and lives become more and more apparent. When we get closer to the light of Jesus, it reveals all our imperfections. We will see who we are for who we are. If you have an unhealthy self-view that is not marked by the attitudes that Paul had, 
that he's the least of the apostles, the saints, the foremost of sinners. Something's wrong. It is when we adopt an attitude that God is everything and we are nothing, now we are putting ourselves in a position of humility. We need to take sin seriously, that we are not entertaining it. Because again, the devil is patient. He is relentless. And the little so-called sins that you see as so-called little now will manifest itself 20 years later and destroy ministries. Cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. Mourn over our sin. Lastly, A life of humility leads to an exaltation from God. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And this is a recap of of verse 7. And he will exalt you. One of the privileges that we have as those that will live a life of humility, one day we will be exalted by our Lord. Philippians chapter 2, I want to read for us as we uh, close here. Verse 4, Paul says this of Jesus, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking a form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As Jesus acted the ultimate act of humility, thinking of others before himself and dying to, and submitting himself to God and, dying to, and, and, and obeying to the point of dying on the cross... We see here in Philippians 2 that God will exalt him. And here in James, as we consider the same perspective, to live a life not about ourselves, but of others and of God, he will exalt us. Brothers and sisters, I hope that this is something that you look forward to that it is something that is valuable to you? Is the exaltation of God something that you look forward to? Is it something that you want? Because if it is, it is that that will move us to a life of humility, a life of thinking of our Lord and of others. If you are one that is marred more by broken relationships, first with the Lord and with others, there might be something wrong. You might not be in the Lord. Okay? But for those of us that are, 
This is the life that we are called to, a life of humility, one that seeks the interests of God and of others.